Hi listeners, just Nick here in the edit. Just letting you know that this episode was recorded on the 2nd of August 2020, just two days before an explosion in a munition storage facility destroyed a significant portion of the port of the Lebanese city of Beirut. At the time of my recording this, the death toll is already over 100 people, with thousands more injured and probably countless others now at extreme risk of increased poverty, food insecurity and severely increased risk from the COVID-19 pandemic as a result. Uh, This is all in what was already a highly unstable economic climate. So if you want to help support the people of Lebanon in their relief and rebuilding efforts and are financially able to do so, we urge you to donate to any of the following charities. Those being the Lebanese Red Cross at www.supportlrc.app slash donate. The Lebanese Food Bank at donate.lebaneseFoodBank.org. Impact Lebanon at www.justgiving.com slash crowdfunding slash impact dash Lebanon. And Beit El Baraka at beitelbaraka.net. That's B-E-I-T-E-L-B-A-R-A-K-A dot net slash donation slash pay. We will provide links and further information in the show notes for this episode. Thank you for listening and thank you for your support. Computer, initialize Holosuite. Holosuite Media. Verix Assemble! Verix Smart! Verix Jagola! And I am Verix Conson, and we are the Verix Assembly. And this is your Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast on Holosuite Media. Yes, it is. Hello, everyone. How are you both? I am doing well. You are? So am I. Oh, we got such happy Vedics with us today. Yeah. Of course. My paw is all in alignment, you guys. Mm -hmm. Is it? My paw is in a turmoil, but I'm a paw wraith, so I'm a secret paw wraith. Well, that... Oh, no, don't say that now. Oh, no. Was this this supposed to be a spoiler for episode 172? Exactly. Gosh, I thought we talked about this. Guys, sorry. (sighs) The secret's out. Well, it's out now. (laughs) Way to spoil it. So, have you been up to anything interesting for the last couple of weeks since we last spoke to each other? I know you've done a boldly go, Brandy. Yes, we recorded a boldly go two nights ago as of this recording. And uh, it it went really well and really off the rails and is going to be amazing when it comes out. Uh-huh. What about you, Vedic Collinson? Uh, well, I have enjoyed not really uh, having anything to do, not uh, enjoyed not having to stress over writing my thesis, but I applied for a job recently and had an interview, so... Oh, really? It will be fun doing a little bit of lab work um, on the few days we're allowed to go into the lab. So, yes, we'll see how that all plans out. Mm. Just generally enjoying the fact that um, the weather seems to be getting a bit nicer and, and the wattle trees have started blooming, which look beautiful. 
Yes, exactly. I'm so excited for summer to come back. I am sick of winter. There are a lot of things I love about winter, especially, I mean, you know, we don't get like ridiculously freezing here like we do in some places, but you know, I prefer being warm. (laughs) Yeah. Bring back my 31 degrees. Love it. You can have my 39 degrees. I'll take that as well. I like that. Yeah, please, please take it because I am sick of it. I went for a drive when it was 47. It was beautiful. <laughs> oh, actually, yeah. No. I remember um, when I was a kid, my family, uh, we all drove from Melbourne to Adelaide on a 47 degree day. Mm. Yes, it's uh, good old air conditioning, I tell you. I wouldn't want to yeah, do the that car back had in good the air conditioning, but every, days. Every time we stopped, it was not pleasant. <laughs> I like it. I like the sun. So Yeah, I don't. The sun's not my friend, but we've discussed this. Yes. So today, listeners, we've got our very first content episode for you. Obviously, last fortnight, you heard us talk about why we love Deep Space Nine and Star Trek and why I like Kai Wynn. So today, we thought we'd start on our very first episode, Deep Dive, which, aptly, we might as well choose the first episode of all of Deep Space Nine with Emissary. Yay! Emissary. Before we go through it, though, what what were your first thoughts on Emissary when you first watched it back in the day? Go for it, Vedic Jackala. Um, I was not enamored of Ben Sisko for the first half of that episode. No? <laughs> because I thought he was being extremely unstarfleet, and, I mean, he was great with everybody else, but his vitriol at Picard for something that Picard couldn't even control, I felt was really immature. Okay. And it bothered me quite a bit. Of course, he gets over it, but those that's a really hard scene when he finally goes to see Picard on the Enterprise before the Enterprise leaves. It, it's just, I just thought, wow, I thought Starfleet was better than that, mm. but apparently not. Mm. So, okay. you know, I and I... I get why he was upset, but at the same time, I would have thought that we had progressed past the point where we hold on to grudges, especially when it was a situation that the person who committed this crime that you perceived is, you know, had no control over what they were doing. So I just thought it was, it really bothered me. And so I was not a big Cisco fan at the start. Okay. About it, Collinson? I I don't know if I can remember exactly when the first time was that I watched it. The first, I think my first impressions that I can remember from it are probably not seeing kind of the, um, a lot of the deeper meanings in it that I see now. And I think I definitely sort of saw it from the start and thought, you know, some of these characters are quite fun. Uh, it was not the first episode of Deep Space Nine I'd seen because I didn't watch it in order. Um... But I think I remember even quite early thinking that it was a pretty good pilot episode for a Star Trek series. Because I was like, okay, it, it, it shows who these people are. I think Bashir being sort of really awkward um, stuck out to me. I think one of the first things I remembered is his scene when he's talking to Kira and he's talking about frontier medicine. <laughs> and she's just <laughs> like, um, that wilderness is my home. <laughs> yeah. See, when I first watched it, it it actually wasn't that long ago. As I said, last fortnight's episode, it's probably only three years ago. But I did think it was quite a boring episode. 
is for a season opener or for a series opener. Every time I've watched it since, my mind has been changed on that. Mm. I say my first thoughts were, I don't really care about the Prophet stuff, him sitting on the beach, don't really care about that either. But yeah, I was more interested in what's happening with the space station and Kira and what Miles were doing. But that's changed a lot in the three or four times I've watched it since. Or maybe it's been five times I've watched Emissary, actually. I think that was pretty much my impression when I first saw it as well. It mm. took me a while to kind of realize how interesting I found it. Yeah. Well, should we start going through it? Yeah. yeah. Let's do cool. that. So we open Emissary with a crawl about, you know... Battle of Wolf 359. I think that whole crawl was totally pointless because we could have inferred that anyway from the fact that we had Locutus and a Borg ship. But anyway, uh, so we start with him on the Saratoga, uh, obviously at Wolf 359, which is what I want in a short trek or an episode or a storyline. I want to see more Wolf 359. Oh, okay. I mean, I know Brandy's not a fan of like the war stuff, necessarily but i just think it's a really cool idea that especially as we didn't see much of it through tng we only really saw lacutus and no real attacking through best of both worlds i think i'd like to see more takes on it from different angles like how we got that little flashback to it here you know in the start of Mm. emissary um which was you know the first time we would have seen anything actually within the battle itself I don't know, it'd be interesting to see, maybe they might even reference it in um, Lower Decks, because it's not all that many years removed from it, so you might have a few, maybe yeah. a couple of the um, the senior staff have, you know, memories of serving as ensigns or lieutenants on ships that were um, near that battle. Oh, that would be cool, actually, because, yeah, Wolf 359 is one of the biggest things in Star Trek. Hmm. Uh, so obviously it's the van on the saratoga everything starts blowing up and cisco goes to his quarters rescues poor little jake which is our first little glimpse of oh baby jake and obviously he finds that he can't save jennifer jennifer's already gone which was a heartbreaking scene yeah and like thinking about it i mean obviously i didn't sort of see it i wasn't old enough when it first came out to sort of watch in the context of what Star Trek had been before, but I feel like having that as the opener must have really cemented this to people as like, this is a darker take on Star Trek than what you've seen in original series or Next Generation. Is that... Did did you see it uh, like that, Brandy, in sort of first run when it first started? Yeah, I saw it when it premiered, because I was a teenager Mm. then. I was actually, I think it was 19, going on 20, when DS9 premiered. So, yeah, I was definitely watching that the first time around. And I, you know, I figured when he went into the quarters, I'm like, everybody's dead in there. Mm. So I was really happy when he found his son. But then, you know, he had to be pulled away because he wanted to take his wife with him, Mm. even if it was just her body. And I... I get that on one level, but on another, it's like, she's not there anymore, man. She's not there. Mm. So, you know, let just save your son. Save your son. Save the person who is still living. And he almost, yeah, he almost got Jake killed because he wouldn't leave. They had to drag him out of there. But at that point in time, he couldn't say goodbye to her. 
he just wants to be able to have that time to say goodbye and he can't and I guess he's just stuck in a well between a rock and a hard place he's got to try and save Jake but at the same time he's just lost the person he's been married to for the last 15 years no I I get all of that Mm. and I have watched my mother lose two husbands oh wow so I under I understand that and I guess I just view it I guess I just view dead bodies differently because you know my saying goodbye doesn't require me to see their body okay my saying goodbye is my own personal experience, but I know most people do not feel the same way. Um, and I understand, I totally get why he was upset. But at the same time, I'm just like, you have a child. So first and foremost, that is your your priority right now. Yeah. Yeah. That and he's, exactly. uh, was, he the com- was he the commander of the ship, like the first officer of the Saratoga? I didn't, I believe, I believe so. so. Yes. I didn't quite get that, but but I thought so. So the Bolian helps Jake out. They go into the shuttlecraft, see the Saratoga explode. And then we go to a three years later mark where he's fishing with Jake on the holodeck. Mm. I thought that was a cute little scene. It was really good. It's a really nice um, what's the, juxtaposition. That's the word. <laughs> between, you know, between the tragedy of that opening scene and then him and Jake already sort of having healed perhaps a bit but obviously you know not fully but i really like that it shows straight out of the gate that the two of them have this really good close father-son relationship it's also like you go from the chaos of the saratoga to the serenity of a fishing lake there's no there's nothing yeah going on it's just peace and calm yeah it's it's abrupt i will say this about all of the scenes on the saratoga this has never bothered me up until this point but this time the shaky camera really got on my last i felt seasick Mm. i did too i had a throbbing headache last night and i'm like watching it and i'm like oh my god i feel like i'm on a boat it it was too much and i thought this is more like a found footage movie than it cloverfield It's as bad as Cloverfield. It really is. Yeah. I hated that movie. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I I did. I'm sorry. I liked Cloverfield. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, it's uh, it's, got it's one of many. It's I know, but it's one of many films that everybody loves that I hated, and that's fine. Fair I have not seen it. So, uh, all it did was make me angry. So, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I. I really just, this time I just thought, uh, was it always this way? I mean, obviously it always was that way, but I don't remember it ever bothering me like it did this time. Yeah, I I definitely picked that up last night as well. I wasn't going to mention it because I thought maybe I'm just because of my headache, but yeah, nope, not the only one. Nope, not just you. I had no headache when I watched this, so it it had nothing to do with that. Anything else you want to say about the fishing boat? I, I, yeah, actually, I think that the scene is beautiful because not only does it just show you the kind of relationship they have, but for, especially for a black person, a black man, mm. to show this strong of a relationship with his son, to be shown as a good father, as a caring father, is super important. Even now, mm. it's still super important to just portray fatherhood in a more positive light Mm -hmm. because we don't get enough of that we really just don't so i love that they do that from the get-go you know when you're out of the chaos of the saratoga and we're into the story proper and i'm just it's just oh my heart i got i got 
emotional. I got emotional. emotional. It shows there's going to be a strong relationship (laughs) with Jake and Ben. Yeah. 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 It's, it's really, it's really impressive. And it's, it still to this day is a great example of how you do fatherhood in television. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So let me chug along to the opening scenes of Deep Space Nine with the theme music and all the little shots of the space station. But no wormhole. No, no wormhole, exactly. Which Because we don't oh, know there's a wormhole it yet. It doesn't spoil things. They did a good job of yeah. that. I said this I with Suzanne the other day. I said it with Suzanne the other day with the uh, on the Janeway when we were watching Caretaker, how they spoiled the fact that Chakotay and Belana are going to become main characters just from the title credits. And they also mm-hmm. robbed us of seeing Voyager for the first time. At least we saw Deep Space Nine for the first time just after the fishing scene before before the credits. So they did the good job of the credit scene to try and hide some of the really important things of that episode. I do think the music yes. is a little bit boring in for my liking, but it does match this we're out there all alone in the middle of nowhere kind of mm-hmm. attitude of the show. Yeah. Well, I've expressed this view before, but I've never been a huge fan of the theme because I don't understand it musically. Oh, yeah, because it's got like the my biggest strange problem. timing, I think you've said before, haven't you? Yeah, well, Do not it is. Get it. Um, uh, I specifically asked um, my partner about this because she um, studied music and she played violin for um, many, many years uh, in an orchestra. And, and I played the, especially the later version of the theme song for her. I think the earlier version is okay, but that the different one after season four is when it really starts sounding a bit out of time. And, and she was saying, oh yeah, that's, that's just very strange syncopation. So it's, it's the notes are just played slightly off the beat. Purposely. It's, I guess. Yeah. It's just, mm. which in, interestingly is a, is a thing in uh, jazz music a lot. So, you know, there's, okay. I have no, no idea if that was intentional. Yeah, and I get that, but it's just when I can't figure out what time signature mm. you're in, that's that's weird. Because mm. with jazz, I mean, yeah, they do that a lot in jazz, but I can still tell what time signature they're in. So it's just something that's always, I still haven't figured it out. And I've, I've just given myself a quest that I am going to figure out exactly how this theme song works mm. or die trying. Your latest jackal quest. Yeah, maybe I can have a better understanding of the music. Hmm. So our first introduction to Inside the Space Station is Miles walking Cisco through. The wreckage of what the Cardassians have left behind. Yeah. The station's dark, the station's all but destroyed, really, inside. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of like evil-looking stairs, like the Ferengi quark specifically is like, who's this? And then we got a really <laughs> creepy Vedic, or no, he was a monk. I think it was a creepy monk that was just there. I mean, I think I might fire him from our Vedic assembly. <laughs> but mm, I didn't find him that creepy. I just found him a little intense. Mm. Yeah, I think creepy and intense are the same thing for me. Mm, maybe to you, but not to me. People can be creepy without being intense, and people can in- be intense without being creepy. Mm. So I suppose when they first step foot on the station, I suppose it's a completely different departure to what you're actually expecting to see, because mm. you walk mm. on to or see the Enterprise D for the first time in Encounter of Farpoint as like a luxury cruise liner, and this is, you know, Old Kent Road in a way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good analogy. So... 
And then, yeah, we, we go up to Ops and then, you know, we have the first interaction between Kira and Cisco. Kira's all like super, super angry and Cisco's like, I'm just, I just, I'm just here. Hello. Can I either take the office or we can say hello? Which one do you want to do first? I don't particularly care, but I requested you to be here. I love that introduction of Major Kira. I think it just, overall, and I'll, we'll, I'll talk about it more sort of later on as we introduce new characters, but I think this episode does such a good job as a pilot episode of introducing who most of these main characters are. Oh, 100%. Like, we first meet Kira, and she is fired up, and she is arguing with, you know, with the the representatives from the provisional government. And I just, I get the very strong vibe from Kira that she is basically like, Every woman who has had to work under less qualified men. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, yes. Absolutely. And they didn't want the Federation there in the first place. And so she's antagonistic towards Cisco as well, which I totally get. And Cisco is very, very good at just dissipating that. Yeah. You know, not reacting to that in the way that she expects. And I think that kind of makes her just stop and, hmm, a little bit at first. It gets better as they go through the episode mm. and she she really figures out what he's like. So Yeah, we get a little bit into her backstory as well about how she was basically fighting for independence and how Bajorans have wanted independence from Cardassia for so long. Uh, one yeah. thing about this whole scene that I didn't like was Miles' comment when he says, have you ever met a Bajoran woman? Oh, yeah. I'm just like, yeah. hello, 1993. It's just those little bits here and there where it's just like, oh, yeah, this was made in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So brushing that little bit off, I mean, not that we should brush it off and say that it's not important because it is a bad look. Um, you know, it's it's a good scene with Kira. Yeah, it made me not like Miles a little bit. Yeah. Because I just thought, oh, wow. Wow. Mm. Wow. Mm. Yeah. And, and and the funny thing is, is that people who make misogynist and sexist comments will defend themselves by saying, well, I have a wife. I have a daughter. That doesn't mean you're not a sexist yeah. or a misogynist. It's like, I'm not homophobic. I have a gay friend. That kind of thing, too. Yeah. That, <clears throat> that qualifies you as absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. It just says that you've got somebody fooled into marrying you. But, the, I mean, that doesn't mean yes. that you're good. Yes. So exactly it's infuriating. Right. Exactly right. So the next little scene we get is an introduction to Odo, Nog, and Quark. And yeah. There, there was a lot going yeah, on in didn't, this. <laughs> didn't quite have the makeup down for Quark and Odo. Yes, yet. that's what I was going to say. Like, yeah, I know it's just a true. lot of that. Odo looks different. Quark, so distracting. Quark doesn't have his like little really dark eyes. You get further into scene. He doesn't we, have the right nose yet. Yeah, He's got a bit so more get, of a pointy chin as well, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A little too much chin. Yeah. Janzia's mm-hmm. spots aren't quite right either at this stage. When we get down, Odo's to... face looks like it's kind of sliding off. <laughs> <laughs> it did. Oh yeah. Maybe he's from the Demon Planet from Voyager. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Silver blood Odo. Maybe. But, but we get to see him shape shifting for the first time, which is cool. I wasn't expecting that when I first watched it. This is another really good introduction scene, I think. Like, it's again, it's just showing very quickly and easily who these characters are. Like, we so far haven't, aside from, like, the opening crawl at the start, we haven't had any kind of, like, 
just exposition dump, everything has been quite natural. Yeah. I agree. So with, with, with Odo shapeshifting, do you remember watching that for the first time, Brandy, first run? Because obviously Nick and I would have known about Odo before we watched Deep Space yeah. Nine. But was that like a, wow, we've got a shapeshifter? Yeah, I just thought, what? 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 What is that? What? Okay. Um, he turned into orange goo. So he's... He's he's gelatinous. <laughs> he's like Jello. What flavor would I Jello that have? hasn't set yet? Yeah, flavor. Would, he would be orange. You reckon he'd be orange flavored? He'd be orange flavored. Is that just because he's got orange goo? Yeah, exactly. Okay. I mean, it would be weird if he were a flavor and he were orange colored goo, and you tasted it and it was like lime. That would be disconcerting. Be surprising. So yes, but I say like like <laughs> bitter orange. You know. Yeah. Bitter orange-flavoured like Odo. Yeah. Blood orange Odo. Yes. Oh, now I would totally eat Odo now. Let's do now. that. <laughs> Blood orange Odo. Yeah. Definitely. Going to eat it. No, I'm, Blood just thinking of, I'm just thinking of like Deep Space Nine inspired cocktails because I'm imagining Odo just t- tasting like a Negroni. Mm-hmm. Actually, um, there is a book of That's Star Trek cocktails that is coming out in November. By, uh, by hero collectors. Really? So, oh, sweet. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to need to And there to is going that. to be an Odo drink. Better be blood orange. Yeah, there's, there's going to... There, I, I don't remember what it's called, but I did say that it should be served in a bucket. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yes. When I went on my top deck Contiki-style trip around Europe in Italy, we were drinking cocktails out of buckets. It was an experience. So... So I guess the next scene that we have is one of the important ones. Obviously, we've got Cisco and Picard when Cisco transports aboard. Oh, actually, before he jumps aboard the Enterprise D, you've got Mars going. Uh, Captain Picard has hailed you again, and I'm I'm starting to like Picard less and less and less after actually watching Star Trek Picard. I just think he's so, you know, I kind of important. Yeah, I was weirdly thinking a little bit like that as well. Like Picard, as portrayed in this, does sort of fit into how he is later on in Star Trek Picard. Like there's a little bit of that arrogance almost, Mm -hmm. which I feel like is the sort of thing that would probably naturally appear in someone who is of such high standing. uh, And he's so sort of by the book. But I do like that bit where, you know, Miles is like, oh, the Enterprise has hailed you again. I'm just imagining Picard is just sitting there, like, in his radio room, and he's where the hell is he? Mm-hmm. My notes for that says, ugh, Picard. <laughs> so, so when Cisco's in... Yeah, I feel completely differently about that. <gasps> so Really? Because um, the Enterprise, my guess is that the Enterprise was there overseeing the transfer, so he's technically the commander of this particular mission, and has every right to request to see Cisco before he departs. And Cisco does not come to see him until he absolutely has to, which is a show of disrespect. Well, yeah, that's true. And I yeah. don't I don't care what captain would have been asking for that. That's a show of disrespect. I so, suppose he is a it, lower officer, you know, lower ranked. He's a commander yeah. when Picard is captain. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah, and Picard that. did not treat him poorly until Cisco started being a little bitch. Mm. <laughs> so and once he started being a little bitch, Picard got a little bit hard. And who wouldn't have? Who would have just been 
all smiles yeah. and okay, thanks, bye. Mm. Especially from a, a subordinate. Oh yeah. Again, lack of respect, lack of respect for the chain of command as well. Yeah. So no, it is. It is. So that's how I saw it. No, you, uh, you're right. Like Picard's reactions are all uh, completely uh, justified and 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 within reason. Like it it yeah, he obviously is in charge of of this. I, f- I feel like it is definitely framed from Cisco's point of view. Like, oh, I don't know. I-, I felt watching it that I was kind of being led to sympathize with Cisco. Yeah, and I didn't. I was the complete opposite because he, if you watch Picard's face when Cisco is being really terrible, well, yeah, he's wounded. He is absolutely wounded and he's already haunted enough by his experience of being forced to kill people and having no control whatsoever and thinking that he should have been able to resist, that he should have been able to, and and then to have someone else from outside just attack him again for this thing that he's never going to get over anyway. It wounds him, and you see it in his eyes and on his face, and it, it hurt me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I, I think the, the perspective sort of shifted there a bit. It, and it reveals a lot about who Cisco is as a person at that point. You know, he is he is still just because again, that's also when he basically says, um, you know, that he's considering leaving Starfleet. Um, mm-hmm. It shows that he is a broken man um, and is not able to deal with it, and obviously is projecting that trauma onto Picard, who like he himself probably like cisco probably knows that picard wasn't in you know control of what he was doing but you know i imagine that you know that trauma that he is feeling is causing him to do these to 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 blame him like that i don't know i've i've never experienced a a loss of that magnitude so i probably can't really speak to it but i i definitely got that impression that this is Showing how far Cisco has to come in order to to heal. Mm. I feel like I would have the exact same reaction if I were in that situation. As Cisco sit there with an extreme amount of disdain on my face for Picard and lash out in a way and say, well, yes, I met you. You murdered my wife when you were a Borg. I don't know. I've, I've, I sympathize completely with Cisco. But then again, I do take on what you say there, Brandy, about... <laughs> You you can't speak like that to a superior officer. Like I, I I get that point too. Yeah. Well, the the fact of the matter is, honestly, um, he just he wanted someone to blame. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And exactly. He wasn't going to blame himself, so, you know, he decided that he needed a target, and Picard was the face of it. Mm-hmm. So not and totally discounting Picard's experience, and not having any empathy whatsoever of what the other side of that story was. Yeah. So, which this is why I feel that there was a a lack of maturity there. Okay. So, and I'm not, I'm not saying that he was that, you know, Cisco bad. I'm saying that he was not dealing with his shit and he was projecting, he was blaming other people for his own inability to let go. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Also in this scene, we get a whole load of exposition about the Cardassian occupation. 
which I thought was interesting. That sets up the whole idea of Bajor and Cardassia in the first season, really, about what's happening, needing yeah. them to join the Federation, how Picard has a sort of a personal interest, I guess, because he's been on Bajor with Ensign Rowe. Mm-hmm. He's seen it. He's seen, he's he's seen, seen what's happened. So. The occupation. So, yeah, he has some singular knowledge there. Um. Yeah, so after that particular scene, we go to security, and then we can see what kind of a person Cisco is and what kind of a captain he'll be when he's basically blackmailing Quark into staying on the station. I yeah. loved it. I loved it. <laughs> I, and then I really love this scene too. And I, and I love that it leads straight from, you know, he has his conversation with Picard, and we all know the sort of person Picard is. You know, he's mostly... Obviously, he's not always by the book, but he always tries to be sort of upstanding and honourable. Cut to, you know, Cisco doing the sort of underhanded dealing that is probably not sort of Federation policy, but at the same time, he knows that this is what he needs to do to to ultimately do the right thing, you know, for the station and for the people of Bajor. Well, it makes sense yeah. that they want well, Clark to not- stay as well. Because he, yeah. if yeah. a Ferengi stays, there's profit in it, you know. Yeah, yeah that that will keep other shopkeepers there. But also, uh, it's really a very first officer move. You know, the first officer is often doing stuff that the captain can't. Mm-hmm. And you know, he was a first officer. He's still a commander at this point. Yeah. I feel he should have been promoted to captain to take over this post, but mm. that's just me. Makes sense. But I felt like, yeah, you are using your experience as a first officer to get stuff done, and it was crafty. And he wasn't dealing with Federation citizens in this regard. Mm-hmm. The Ferengi aren't part of the Federation, mm. so you know he can he can uh, he can. T- Wheel and deal, I guess, yeah. is the best way to put it. Oh, yeah. Which is cool. I, I very much appreciated that. So, uh, then we... And I love... Oh, I, just, I love Odo's line at the end of the scene as well. Yeah. He's just like, mm. <laughs> you know when I first thought of I didn't think I was going to like him. <laughs> <laughs> and, it's just, and, then, it. and his smile towards Quark. Oh, <laughs> mm. uh, Yeah. So the next scene, we get a whole more load of exposition about how Bajor works, and you learn about the Kai through Kira, and you learn about the whole Bajoran religion, etc., whilst they're cleaning up. And mm. I, it was at this point, I reckon, when I first watched it that I wasn't too interested. But now, having seen Deep Space Nine you know, develop all the way through, I'm like, wow, this, this, this actually really sets off a wonderful story. Yeah. Especially, like, watching it now with more of my sort of knowledge of the real world and sort of yeah events that were going on at the time and, and are sort of still current today, I see so many parallels between, you know, the Bajorans and, I mean, they're, they're kind of just allegory for any kind of oppressed, occupied people in that moment specifically i definitely see a lot of a lot of similarity with like uh people in palestine or you know northern syria you know people who are kind of oppressed and what is kind of holding them together is their religion um mm. and there's so much of that with um Pedro. and also i like that from the start from now we know that there are all of these different factions there you know different political movements and different interpretations of the of the bajoran faith 
that were kind of only really held together by their hatred of the Cardassians, and now that they're gone, it's just like the whole thing is just barely hanging together. You know, Kira is just resigned to the fact that there's going to be a civil war. Mm. Yeah, well, that's what happened here. Mm. <laughs> it's like, yay, we beat the British. Oh, wait. And now we can't decide how we're going to do all this. And these guys don't want to give up their slaves and, you know, all of this stuff. So it, it was less about religion and more about, you know, personal liberties. They felt like this, the people in mm. the Confederacy felt that it was their right to own lesser people to do their work for them and uh the rest of the the country is just like uh no actually um no so and people people want to say oh it was about states rights well here is what was in the articles of the confederacy confederacy all right it mentioned slave ownership over and over and over probably 50 times you know what it never mentions in the articles of the confederacy states rights not one time so you can all just stop saying it was about states rights because it wasn't it was always about slavery mm -hmm. i'm done okay, thank you for coming to my ted talk <laughs> and i can't comment because i don't know anything about states rights and confederacy yeah, well basically the, the the whole thing was that yes there was a federal government but that the states uh you know there were certain rules that applied to all states mm -hmm. But then states had their own individual governments yeah. that could decide how they ran those states. Like here. And yeah, so that's that's basically what that means. Okay, it's just like our constitution. States rights. In Australia. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so what I call creepy Vedic creepy monk guy says it's now time, <laughs> Cisco. He is a bit creepy. Or if not is. creepy, he's, he has a slightly... Um, He's got, a, he's, he's got like a creepy, I'm going to take your child. I wouldn't go that far. I, no, I, I, do. I can't think of a, the right word. I don't think it's exactly creepy. Almost like ethereal, just like you you don't quite know what his motivations are. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Watching it again, I'm like, oh, he's there to take Cisco to the Kai. Mm -hmm. And so when he first says something and uh, Cisco's like, uh, not right now. And the guy just is kind of like, <sighs> She's not going to be happy. <laughs> <laughs> and so that second time, he's just like, now, please don't get me in more trouble. Dude. I'm just trying to do my out. job. Yeah. <laughs> so, and that intensity gets Cisco to go. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So, yeah, we jet set to Bajor, where I will admit my first thought was Syria when I looked at it, because you can see all the monuments <laughs> yeah. that are destroyed because of the occupation, yeah. and then it's just a complete the same thing with what's in Assyria and some of the beautiful buildings and history there that's all destroyed, mm -hmm. and that sort of sent my mind off onto a complete tangent about how shit the world is. But yep. <laughs> so we get to see Aparka for the first time, the Kai who I love, Aparka. She's just so cuddly and play, and she wants to touch his pa, and will mm. that come out wrong again as well? Anyway, let's just move on from that weird <coughs> comment. <laughs> and I did think this whole little scene, though, on Bajor was a bit rushed. Mm. I just felt like it needed a little bit more explanation. I mean, she explained what the par is. It's the life force of the Bajoran. Mm. But then the whole concept of like, getting down the stairs and saying, here's an orb, look into my orb. <laughs> 
you know, that's, um, yeah, I thought that was a little bit rushed. Well, I think that it was, you know, it, with hindsight, mm. we know that this is all about a prophecy. Yeah. And she is convinced that this is the emissary. And so she's not stopping to explain all of this because I think she feels like she doesn't have time. She's like, no, I just got to get him to this orb. Hurry, hurry, hurry. So that I can, you know, prove that this guy's the emissary. Yeah. 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 That's kind of how I felt about it. No, like I I agree that out of all of them, this scene does feel a little bit rushed, but they had a lot to get through, at least in the first sort of part of this episode, until you actually get to sort of like the main action Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, it makes perfect sense, you know, actually in the text that it that she herself, you know, that Kaya Parker is kind of trying to rush through this because she just needs to get to the point with Ben Sisko, whom she thinks is the emissary. Well, and she's been in seclusion yeah. and isn't seeing anyone. So the fact that she has him mm. brought there is a big deal because yeah. that's the thing about uh, Kira is she explains that she's in seclusion. She's not seeing anyone. And if she would just come speak out about how she thinks things should be done, everything would calm down. Of course, that's not really true. But, mm. you know, not everything would calm down after that. Because even if the Kai has spoken, that doesn't mean that everyone's just going to fall right into line. Mm. So, but, uh, but yeah, I, uh, <laughs> yeah, we've got like at least half an hour we've got to spend in Cisco's head. So they definitely had to get a move on. <laughs> Well, yeah, then he has his first orb experience and goes into my probably my least favorite scene of the episode um, and has mm. been ever since I first watched it. He sees Jennifer on the beach and he's wearing those bulging purple shorts. I'm like, oh, uh. mm. and he was so awfully forward and confident and awkward. He's like, I'm going to marry you. And just like yeah it was awkward. it was bordering on harassment yeah. and it made me very uncomfortable very 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 uncomfortable yeah me too only way i can justify it in my mind that scene is that this is him like ex- existing as he is now in that memory again so he's like oh just sort of explaining to this figment of his memory everything that already happened mm. i like i want to believe that when he actually first met her he wasn't that forward and awkward and borderline harassing but oh you don't you never know yeah yeah i mean you see how caring he is with jake and you can probably think that he maybe wasn't like that potentially but it was a mm. very awkward scene and i don't like it and i hate those purple bloody shorts i'm sorry <laughs> i just can't yeah and I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say something that is probably going to um, piss some people off, but I do not like Felicia Bell as Jennifer. I no? have never liked really? her. I have always felt she was stilted, that her face and her voice never matched up, and she was never believable one time. Everything was so forced. Mm. Every time she spoke, it was like watching you know a high school play. Mm. Where no one had taken a drama class, and she's she's had education, like she's had drama school and stuff like that. But here's the thing: drama school doesn't mean you can actually act. Yeah. So 
you know, people can graduate with a degree in acting and not be able to act their way out of a paper paper bag. And I have met people like that <laughs> in community theater. So it just did. I mean, later on when she's playing Mirror Universe, Jennifer, it's it's tolerable. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, every time she's opening her mouth, I'm just like, Ugh! Yeah, and that could be one of the reasons why I also dislike that scene. That it, I don't think it's well acted by either of them. Yeah, no, I think it's really bad. The whole the whole thing seems very stilted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then, after the orb experience, Kaya Parker talks about the celestial temple and the need to find it, and it's the journey that he's destined to take. So it just goes back mm. to what you were saying that she firmly believes that he is the emissary to the prophets. Well, you know, to be fair, he does later on find a lost Bajoran city uh, without any experience in archaeology and <laughs> So that's, that feels pretty emissary to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so then, next in my notes, I just have things happen, Quark stays, stuff happens, more stuff happens, and then we get an intro to Dax and Bashir. Mm-hmm. So, first thoughts on Bashir and Dax. Well, my... Uh... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I only took a few notes, but yeah, my note on Bashir is... Bashir with three exclamation points and an eye rolling emoji. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's yep. it's a pretty it's a pretty leery scene, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm. That was exactly yep. the word I was going to use. Oh really? And it grossed me out. Yeah. Ugh. Just made me again, made me very uncomfortable. Yeah. It's like please, please date me. You know, please go out with me. I'm, I really don't want to give you a choice. But then the way Dax handles it, I think is good and the way she says yes but also shuts him down almost at the same time yeah just by her demeanor mm-hmm. and her attitude and i mean that's why i love dax dax is one of the best characters as i think in star trek just because she's got all these life experiences to draw on yeah mm-hmm. and, and it really shows mm-hmm. and he Definitely. puts his foot in it with kira obviously you were saying earlier nick in the the frontier thing i thought that was rude <laughs> yeah, I think that is my favorite scene um, in this whole episode. Just his, you know, he's being such a, like... Asshole? Yeah, well, it's almost <laughs> like that kind of, that very, like, British colonial attitude. Like, it's it's very interesting that they had the, the sort of very, like, posh English-accented guy be the one saying this. Mm-hmm. Um... He's just saying, ah, yes, out here on the frontier, this is where heroes are made. It's, yeah, it's just, I think they did a really good job of making us hate him in that first episode. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I I like that he does get a lot better as you go along. Yes. Yeah, his story becomes a lot more complex and interesting, and I appreciate that. But in these, especially in season one, there are a lot of... Bashir cringy moments mm-hmm. a lot yeah. now one thing with Dax that I thought was really cool was how we got an introduction to what the Triller like through an orb experience instead of yeah. explaining it all and being like I've got a worm in me that's 300 and something years old and I've had many lives and etc it just explains very quickly how the Trill operate and what happens to them when one dies as we see Kurzan and then going into Jadzia. You know, I thought it was a cool little way of doing it. Yeah. I, I, yeah, this and like her quick conversation with, um, with Cisco, where like obviously this is the first time that he's met Dax as Jadzia. Um, mm-hmm. 
it's again it's like i said before we're just getting little snippets of like exposition but it's woven in so um organically that it, it never feels like you're taking out of it. it never feels like someone is just like turning to you the audience and saying blah 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 this is how this thing works you know there, there is no like as you all know speeches you know when when sometimes especially cypher things do that is everyone in the world you know or everyone in the world of the show knows how a certain concept works but because we the audience don't they still have to explain it mm-hmm. um yeah like i think discovery did that to a, a, an extent when they were explaining how the mycelial network functioned because it was tilly and stamets explaining it to each other it's like you both know how this works yeah i know you want to do an episode nick on the trill as well so i think that's going to be exciting i will eventually yeah i would love to having having studied um symbiotic life forms myself yeah well see for me i was coming from tng where i'd already seen the trill yeah so i had no need to have it explained to me but the way in which it was explained didn't make me go oh i already know this it wasn't like that but Mm. i did find it interesting that instead of having a forehead thing the alien forehead thing now they had spots Mm -hmm. so i was just like wait what (laughs) (laughs) okay we got spots now fine all right lovely hey yeah so my next little note is miles leaves the d don't care um did you did you really care about that 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 scene is kind of awkward i'm not gonna lie Mm-hmm. I'm just like, Ugh, whatever. It wasn't really that main a character yeah. on the Enterprise <laughs> anyway, so what's the point? I don't know, it's just weird. It's just a bit strange it's like, this was your favourite transporter room, wasn't it? Oh, yes, no, number three. Yes, sir. Yeah, well, the thing is, is that at the time, because, see, I was watching Next Gen as it was airing, Miles was beloved. Mm-hmm. So not, really. not giving him a send-off would have been very awkward. And I did actually get tiny bit emotional because it was Picard who was the one who sent him off. He had, you know, Miles should have just gone to say goodbye, but he was being a stupid guy, and so he didn't. And then Picard finds out he was there and comes down to the transporter room to say goodbye without actually saying the word goodbye. And and uh, dismisses the transporter chief and, and beams him off himself. And for some reason, that just gave me an emotional response that I'm just like, why am I having this response? I have never had this response to that scene. So maybe it was because I was sad that two men couldn't just say, hey, man, I'm going to miss you. Uh, Take care. Bye. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I just didn't have any. Yeah, thinking about it now, I think that might have been what I that that's probably what I found awkward about it. It's like, just 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 show some emotion, Mm -hmm. please. Stop doing that stiff upper lip BS. It's dumb. It's 24th century. We should be better than mm-hmm. that. Yeah, just make out and move on. Yeah, just, just, <laughs> even if it's just a quick kiss with no tongue, you know, just, just, yeah. you know, yeah. it's fine. <laughs> Somebody ships that. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm sure there is a shit. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So then we get Golda Cut arriving. Oh, yay. Golda Cut. It's like, uh, also, hello, Ducat. Also, his makeup, not quite there yet. <laughs> Yep. And his attitude's not fully there yet either, and like the inflections and tone of his voice. But you can still tell the kind of relationship that they're going to have between him and Cisco. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I th- I think that I think in a way it actually works because Ducat doesn't know anything about Cisco and Cisco doesn't know anything about Ducat. And so Ducat mm. is kind of feeling him out and seeing what he can get away with. And I think it was actually the first time that I realized how long Mark Alamo's <laughs> neck is. <laughs> it's just like, oh my word, that man has the perfect neck for being a Cardassian. I mean, it's just, yeah, he's like he's like a, a gazelle. It's just, yeah. Giraffe. Uh, okay, giraffe. Or a diplodocus. <laughs> oh, my God. Somebody needs to Photoshop the Cardassian neck on a diplodocus neck. I really would like to see that. Um, and I, I didn't say his name right. It's Marco Lemo. So, yeah, I, it was just, um, Wow. I, I and I was just so thrilled. I I didn't remember Ducat showing up in the very first episode, so it was a pleasure mm. when he popped in. So then we get a scene in Quark's bar where the Cardassians are winning, and Kira basically just tells everyone to shove off. And I, at that point, I was confused until the next scene where we find Odo's the bag. <laughs> so, oh yeah, yeah. Like, what, what? Why? What was the point in this? Mm-hmm. Oh, there's the point. They needed and obviously him. they. <laughs> Have Cisco and Dax leaving in a runabout so that you know they can get to the Denorius belt whilst Odo sabotages the Cardassian sensors. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah that uh, that was not the best sequence of the goo coming out of the vent. It was no. rather choppy. Yeah, it was the whole thing's little... choppy. It needs a good remaster. Yes. Oh, it gets yes. it gets better. It has it has those things, those marks of a pilot episode where everything's there, like all of the pieces are there, but they're not quite fitting together right yet, and they need to like, you know, fix little mm. things yeah. to become what it does become. And that's that's typical of pilots as a general rule. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. This is the point where last night I got very tired because I've got the notes for saying Cisco and Dax leave in a runabout. This science happens and they open up a wormhole. Uh-oh, weirdness happens. So this is the point where I got really tired last night. But they find a wormhole, obviously, in the Denorius belt after Dax has done all of their um, sciencing. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, look, a wormhole. Yay. Could this be the Celestial Temple? Dun, dun, dun. And then they land and they're like, there's atmosphere in here. I really love that. It's just a perfect, like, um, it perfectly shows who the characters are, these different worlds that they see. Mm. Yeah, and they're different emotions. Yeah, Dax is quite serene. She's had all of these lives to draw on, so she's probably just generally emotionally in very good place. So she's seeing this sort of idyllic paradise. Obviously, Cisco is just in, in complete inner turmoil, so he just sees this storm-wracked wasteland yeah mm, exactly it, it it perfectly describes how their emotions are set and this is the point in the episode where things start getting heavy it's probably the best way i can put it yeah hard to watch in certain cases emotionally hard to mm. keep track of if you sort of have a mind wander for 30 seconds yeah <laughs> um it, it does actually get to the point where i'm just like oh if they say what is this? One more time. Oh, yes. Yeah. It's like facial hair. What is this? Yes. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's. Funny boots. Yeah. It's bo- mind boggling enough that they don't experience time as a, a linear yeah. construct. 
and experienced. It's basically all the same place. Time is just, it's the past, the present, the future. It's all together, all at one time. That sounds like chaos to me, but our poor little linear brains just can't comprehend that. I mean, I, I did, as irritating as the prophets constantly saying, what is this is, I still kind of like this scene. I, I like how you can really see like the gears working inside Cisco as he tries to figure out how to explain the concept of of linear time to these beings and he eventually does it with baseball yeah well and they're kind of they get hostile at first yeah it's like oh we must destroy him he's here to get you know to, to attack us i'm like you're obviously Standard what you don't know you destroy yeah it's you just kind of like yeah um you're obviously way more powerful than this man this this linear being who doesn't even have a weapon on him i mean what's he going to do mm. to you i like that like we what is it they say um we try to contact other life forms not uh, what do they call what does he call them like not organic things you know, it's basically yeah. like a, um, i can't even remember if we were recording when i mentioned you know they're they're made out of meat by terry bissom you know the idea of meat these flaps. completely non-corporeal um non-organic alien creatures that don't even recognize like carbon-based life forms as life well yeah exactly and it's it's a whole confusing concept for them someone who's mm. corporeal physical you know time exists etc and as a viewer watching it it's confusing but it also makes you think about your own existence in a way that you try and link up some things in your mind and how time has worked for you yeah. So one of my favorite parts is that he tries to explain when I think it's wormhole alien Jake is goes experience. What is this? Or whatever it is. And humans are a sum of all their experiences, which is so true. Like none of us will know how to face something without mm. having some form of experience to draw on in the past. Yep. Very true. And that we are a species that live in one point of time or one point in time. And that, we only know the past. We don't know what the future is, and it's up to us to anticipate what's happening in the future from experiences we've had in the past, which must be really confusing, I guess, for an alien that just knows everything. Mm -hmm. Because they must know everything if they ex exist out of time. Yeah, mm. but they don't because they didn't know what Cisco was and didn't understand linear life forms so they don't yeah, really which is, know everything yeah it's yeah and that's where i feel it sometimes falls apart a little bit mm. the whole idea of the wormhole aliens are sort of just like i'll just pretend i didn't think of that potential problem well in pothole in mm. a way i think i think i can headcanon this for you um oh go for it i love brandy <laughs> because they were unaware of linear existence they would not have any concept of that being a life form they would have no way okay, to understand yeah. how a life form could exist that way so they honestly you know they didn't know what they didn't know and not through any fault of their own it's just because they're on a literal different level of existence yeah i, I feel like that's that's exactly that's what it is candidate. yeah exactly yeah. um we have the scene all different scenes now with cisco yeah. He's in the park and, you know, Jennifer's like, touches her lips and like, ooh, hello, what does this feel like? And then Cisco explains that, you know, that humans and corporeal entities like 
physical interaction because it gives them pleasure. She has no she has no idea what pleasure is. I'm just like, oh, for God's sake, how many more things don't you know what's going on? Surely you must have some form of procreation, wormhole alien. Um, and then we jump back to the Saratoga for that hard scene with all the different yeah. people on the bridge and then the Bolian dude and then a par- wormhole Parker, wormhole Jake, etc. all in Cisco's quarters with Jennifer dying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how he just doesn't want to be there, but he exists there. But he, but he doesn't realise, and we get to realise or realise along with him that that is where he's never left because yeah. he can't leave there because Jennifer hasn't moved on. Yeah, and it is such a strong metaphor for trying to deal with a traumatic experience like that. Yeah, and it's it, even the way that they frame it in the the way the wormhole aliens talk about it. You know, they say, "But you exist here." And I feel like that's exactly right. Like, if you've experienced something like that, it would keep being current for you, like, if you can't move move on. So, yeah, you just you keep existing there and not anywhere else. Yeah. And I'm sure we've all got some experience in our past that's been traumatic that we sometimes just end up thinking about for whatever reason. You could be in the middle of nowhere or doing mm. something at work and then all of a sudden something triggers you to remember some traumatic experience from the past and then you're sort of back there. Yeah, I have learned how not to do that. I mean, the the triggers mm. will happen regardless, but now I have a way to deal with that and it took years to perfect. Um, but watching this absolutely destroyed me this time. Just yeah. really destroyed me. The re- when he finally realizes what he has been doing, and the grief that he's been doing that, and how I, and I'm sure what's going through his mind is how it's affected all his relationships, how it's affected his son, all of these things, and he's mm-hmm. you know he's had a breakthrough. So it it's it's just really hard and yet beautiful at the same time. Because he's finally figured it out. And would he have ever done that without the wormhole aliens? Probably, but it might have taken much, much longer. But my thing is, yeah. my, my brain loves to remind me of terrible things or awkward things or mistakes that I've made, but especially with terrible things. It loves to do that. It especially loves to do that in the form of dreams. So I really love it when <laughs> I can't just shut that off, but... Um, I get to this point where I just say, okay, and I, and I have to say it out loud sometimes say, okay, this is something I cannot change and there is no value in thinking about it. So I'm not going to think about it. And I keep repeating that until I'm not thinking about it anymore. And it sounds like overly simple. It's not, it takes a lot of practice, but it's gotten me to the point where I don't dwell in those past experiences anymore i've learned what i can from them i've moved on and when my brain tries to trick me into going back to that place i'm like nah i've been there so bye but yeah it's um i think the clinical term for for dealing with things that way is uh, acceptance commitment therapy mm. or or method or something like that and yeah and it is because it works for for any kind of negative thoughts mm-hmm uh, when when it when something comes up, it, you don't try to push it away. You you acknowledge it. You say, "Yes, I am acknowledging this thought is here. Is it helping me at this moment? No. Okay, I'm going to move on. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna I know that that's there. I'm going to acknowledge it. It's there, and it's just it's 
sitting off away because it's not helping and it's not doing anything. It's an incredibly difficult thing to get to. Mm-hmm. Mm. And oh, God, sit, yeah. And then when you realise it, it's I guess a big relief, and you can see that in Cisco mm-hmm. that he's never he knows he's never going to forget the day at Wolf Three Five Nine on the Saratoga where he loses Jennifer, mm. but he chooses to live there and chooses to live in the pain, and now he knows that he doesn't need to live there to move on but he doesn't need to lose the memory either mm-hmm. yeah of all the good memories that jennifer and him have yeah it's it's very moving mm. very very moving so in the meantime whilst all the cisco stuck in the celestial temple wormhole scenarios happening we have all this stuff happening on the station where kira and miles want to move the space station to the actual wormhole itself which in itself is great. They're moving a space station. I, I don't yeah. think the science kind of <laughs> worked very well. But anyway, they managed to move the whole space station to the wormhole, which I thought was cool. And then they get themselves into a fight with some Cardassians and Goldrasad. Yeah. yeah. Which I'm like, yes, sci-fi space action. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I love, like, Kira kind of bluffing the Cardassians and, and Miles fighting with the computer. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a recurring theme for Miles. Oh, yeah. It is, yeah. So we get to see that the space station obviously cannot handle itself at the mm. moment because it's all brand new. Obviously, by the time we get to season four, it's got all these awesome cannons and things in the, in the way of the warrior, which is exciting. But that's a long way away for us. We get an image of... The Rio Grande tractoring the Cardassian ship with Golda Cart on it back out of the wormhole. <laughs> yeah. Which I'm just that like, oh, a, yeah. That is such a great scene. Just through that entire thing, the calling each other's bluff mm-hmm. between Kira and the Cardassians, you know, at some point they managed to fire off a few warning shots. She wastes, you know, the only six torpedoes they have, you know, in a, in a warning shot, in a, in a kind of show of bravado. Um, oh, it is so mm-hmm. just like each side waiting for the other to blink. Mm-hmm. Just basically playing a big yeah. game of chicken. Well, the the Cardassians <laughs> don't fall for it for very no, long. No, you know, because even then he um, because they f- fool the Cardassian sensors, so they they look at it. They're like, oh, they've got like five hundred quantum's and all these phaser batteries, and it's like, no, it must be a trick. These are sensor ghosts, and they just start firing anyway. Well, they did logic yeah. that out a little bit and mm-hmm. said, how could they have done that in two weeks? Yes, mm-hmm. so. That, that was good. And then our final scene, pretty much of importance, is him and Picard. The Picard saying that he hadn't had time to put in a transfer or whatever. And Cisco saying that he wants yeah. to stay on the space station because Cisco has worked out that that's yeah. exactly where I he needs really to be. I really liked the interplay between them and this. And I think, it, first of all, you have um, Cisco. It, it seems to be showing a lot more respect to Picard in this one. So it shows that already mm-hmm. he has matured, he started to grow. Uh, yeah. And I think Picard sees that as well. But although there is that the great bit that is just kind of in watching it more recently, it struck me as like going a little bit more mature or complex than some TV shows might have. Like I could almost imagine in some ways where he'd be like, I'd prefer it if you would ignore that, sir. And then be like, all right, then welcome back aboard. But of course, you're like it's it's Picard, and he is much more of a of a shrewd judge of character, and he's he sees this as oh, you know, this guy was not sure, and now he's just suddenly changed his mind. 
He's like, you know, I'm not, I'm not so sure that I believe you that you have changed your mind and that you really believe that this is where you mean, need to be now. He's like, we need our Starfleet commanders, you know, our officers to be to be fully committed. You know, so I like that he just he doesn't believe him straight away. Like Cisco still just has to prove a little bit more that he is ready for this. Yeah, my personal feeling on this, and I I thought about this long and hard, is when Picard says he hasn't had time to request a replacement. I'm like, really? Mm. How much time would that take? What, five minutes? Maybe ten? And he didn't have time to do that. Mm. Oh, Mm. yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, that was a bluff. I think that he didn't put in that request because he was waiting to see if Cisco was going to rise to the occasion mm. and wasn't sure whether he would. Yeah. So when he returns and they have that conversation, I feel like he's like, uh, when Cisco says, you know, he'd like, I'd like you to ignore that. I think like inside Picard's like, yeah, but outside he's like, well, you know, we need to be sure that you're going to actually follow through on yeah. this, you know, gives him that and, and makes him, you know, commit yeah. even yeah. further as I think my personal headcanon is that Picard absolutely intended never to request a replacement. <laughs> I mean, we've seen that a fair few times throughout Trek, you know, characters that want something from a senior officer, mm-hmm. but the senior officer just waits for them to come around to your own point yeah. of view, or to their point yeah. of view, or the, you know what I mean. And how many times have you done that in your life as well, that somebody said something mm-hmm. to you, but you know that they're not actually meaning that, and then you wait until they realize that they were either wrong or have come to a more logical or self-aware conclusion. Yeah, and and Picard, even after Cisco had treated him so poorly, still gave him that opportunity, because mm. it's Picard. So... Yeah, Picard. <laughs> you know, I he's he's a lot of people's favorite captain. He's not my favorite captain, which doesn't say mean that I don't like him. But yeah. you know, uh, he was. I think he did the right thing in this circumstance, and I think that his experience uh, up to that point influenced yeah. that because you know he's had he's had situations in his life that have taught him these lessons and he went with his intuition and he was right mm. so we've made it through to the end of emissary we have yeah thanks for sticking with us listeners i don't know how long we've been recording for forever um let's oh. see an hour 22 it's just over an hour and yeah. 20 no, but like the first 10 up. minutes of that is going to be gone anyway <laughs> pretty much yeah so really what do you reckon your final thoughts are of Emissary now that you've watched it for the umpteenth time. <laughs> Go, Vedic Collinson. Okay. Um, I think that out of all of the um, Star Trek series pilots so far, I'm going to go out there and say that I think Emissary does the best job of being a pilot for the show. Um, I just think it does so well in introducing the theme of the show the situation that everyone's in the all the key players you know the characters and you know the wider political entities you know Bajor and Cardassia and and how everything works together I I think if you watch this episode 
and it's your first introduction to anything to do with Deep Space Nine, you probably will have a really good idea of how the series could play out, or at least what watching the entire series is going to be like. You'll see it, you'll be like, okay, there's going to be a little bit of weird celestial stuff, there's going to be a lot of, like, trade and interplay between, you know, different parties, there's going to be some, like, political machinations, and even, you know, little bits of space battles here and there, and there's going to be all of these different characters from different walks of life and different points of view having to work together. Vedic Jackalot? Yeah, um, watching it again, it's probably been about three to four years since I've seen it. Um, I had forgotten all the misogyny and creepy men stuff, and it bothered mm-hmm. me to the highest degree than it has in any other watching of this episode, and I think it's because I am just sick of it. I'm tired of it. It needs to stop. It still hasn't stopped. It's still a part of society, and I'm done. I have had it. So, and it's it's only these few things, but these few things just really made me furious when they happened. And I, I yeah, I can say, oh yeah, well, it was the 90s, but you know, it should never have had a place in Star Trek ever. So, at least not from Starfleet officers. So, of which all of the uh, offenders were Starfleet officers. So, but mm-hmm. apart from that... There are so many fantastic moments in this premiere, in this pilot, and it was probably one of the most, one of the more interesting stories, one of the more coherent stories, even with all the wormhole alien stuff and the jumps in time. And it was definitely the most uh, emotional for me as far as a pilot episode, something that really got the tear ducts working. So I, I appreciate it in different ways than I did even the last time that I saw it. And that's that's the beauty of life experience is that it changes the way you view things and uh, makes everything new again. For me, every time I watch Emissary, I get something different out of it. This time I got a lot more out of the religious aspect to Bajorans and the whole wormhole aliens and kind of thing. I think... It is probably the more, I don't want to say well-written of the episodes, but it, it seems to follow on and there's less maybe plot holes or hand-wavy stuff that happens, except for maybe the moving of the spaceship, but that's just cool to watch that you can forgive that. I, I put it up there with Caretaker probably as the one of the better pilot episodes of Star Trek. I can't. I'm not going to tell you which one I like more because I like them for different reasons. Mm. But yeah, it's there's there's a lot to this episode and a lot of depth to it that I appreciate. So thank you for listening to this episode of the Vedic Assembly. Before we close, Nick and Liam record on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Garna people of the Adelaide Plains, respectively. We pay our respects to elders, past, present, and emerging, and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. You can keep up to date with our episode releases on Twitter at Vedic Assembly, on Facebook at facebook.com slash Vedic Assembly, and please also join us in our listeners community called The Nexus. Just search for The Nexus on Facebook and you will find it. You can find Liam on Twitter at LS 
1-800-273-7456. And on this network hosting the Janeway, our Star Trek Voyager podcast. You can find Nick on Twitter at Punk Zoologist and on Instagram at Punk Rock Zoologist. And you can find me on this network hosting Boldly Go, our Strange New Worlds podcast, and on Twitter at Brandywine12. That's Brandy with an I, and the 12 is a number. Vedic Assembly is part of the Hollow Sweet Media Network. Vedic's Disassemble! <laughs> <laughs> That's always fun. It is funny. This show is brought to you by Hollow Sweet Media. Computer, list other available Hollow Sweet Media programs. Loading Hollow Sweet Preview Program for Blast Shield, a Star Trek Lower Decks podcast. And she starts swinging it in a ridiculously reckless way. But it's so over the top that I was laughing out loud and it's putting a smile on my face. I know you were laughing. I really when you first related saw it. to that moment. <laughs> you know I get over the top. It was, uh, I just think it gives a good idea at her. And the way they cut around it, it's so close in her face. You're like, oh my God, she's crazy. And then we get the moment where she just slices it into his leg. And it's very graphic. Oh, it's really, detail. You see the muscle, like the different muscles torn. You can like see the, ligaments. The, yeah. Oh my goodness. Yes. Yeah, I think you see bone as well. Loading Hollow Sweet preview program for The Janeway, a Star Trek Voyager podcast. The orangey skin makes me think of something else. Makes you think nowadays. of Donald Trump. <laughs> And, and bad hair. Oh my god! He's Kazan. Donald Trump is Kazan. Trump is a Kazan. Oh my god! I'm surprised he's not calling himself Mad Trump. <laughs> because he's not very bright either. No, it fits perfectly. I understand it all now. We've we've just been taken over by the Kazan. And we didn't even realize it. No. Oh my god, <laughs> listeners, we've just solved the mystery of the last four years in the United States. Loading Hollow Sweet preview program for. There are four questions, a Star Trek Spotlight podcast. I always thought I was special that I knew that the theme came from the end of, of the original motion picture. Like, I thought nobody knew that but me. <laughs> and of course, that was dumb to think. But that was, and that was the thing that, that always really sort of stuck with me. So in getting, to, in getting to work on Discovery, it was, you know, really, really an amazing experience for me and an amazing thought to be able to start working in this world of this kind of narrative. But when, when I talked to Alex about doing um, Picard, it was on a whole nother level of, of connection for me. Computer, deactivate Holosuite.